Welcome to Becoming Legendary, a podcast where we talk with rad people from all over the planet about their legendary stories. This week, we are speaking with Sharon Seitz, an incredibly powerful woman who has dealt with an amazing amount of adversity in her life. She was born into a deeply, deeply disturbing religious cult, a cult that you may have heard the stories about because it's been all over the news media. It's been stories on 2020. Jacquette and River Phoenix were both born into the cult, and so was Rose McGowan. And most recently, this specific cult, the family, or the children of God, was featured in a Tony Robbins documentary currently available on Netflix, I Am Not Your Guru. In that documentary, a young woman, Don Watson, shares her experience of being a member of this cult, and it's a really horrific experience. Sharon shares her story, how her family escaped the cult, and what's been going on in her life since that time. So without further ado, let's get to Becoming Legendary with Sharon Seitz. every opportunity so that you can become you legend can become legendary what adjustments can you make right now to make yourself one your percent better your only goal is to be the best version of you Sharon thank you so much for coming on becoming legendary Thank you so much for having me. Full disclosure, this is our second time recording this. So so we'll get to we'll get to repeat a few things. Yeah, I'm excited. <laughs> Give me the typical day in your life. Well, I have numerous things that I kind of have my hands in. So I do some dog training and I do dog sitting for some families. That's mostly just some things that I've taken on recently, like I used to do when I was younger. Uh, so that's been more my daily life recently. Other than that, it's my my therapy, my groups, different types of therapies like acupuncture and moving beyond trauma therapy and stuff like that. So I work with and for different types of groups like that. What's your favorite type of dog to work with? Oh, American Staffordshire Terrier. Hands <laughs> down. What's your least favorite type of dog to work with? Oh my gosh, that's so hard to say. It's really, it depends on um, what the owners want or don't want. It depends on my my compatibility with the dog. <laughs> it's not the dog's fault. <laughs> it's true. It's never the dog's fault. It's really Although not. my Jack Russell could make you maybe change your mind on that. Oh, they are buggers. They are buggers. They are smart buggers. They can drive you a little crazy. Yeah, they can do some things. <laughs> Typical day right now, it sounds pretty standard, right? Right. And that's only recently come to that that place. The last year and a half now, I have not been so social. I have been kind of cocooning. In November of 2016, I lost my dad to suicide. And when that happened, I I kind of shifted almost everything I thought I knew. And I did a lot of meditative work and self-exploration, which yes, I had already been doing. I did a lot of emotional intelligence work. Really, that's the focal point of what I was doing. I worked with people as a life coach and, and I did different types of practical work. 
for this, I didn't realize that I had, for one, not let go of quite a few things. And for two, how how much I leaned on my dad and I's relationship to avoid the, the thought of afterlife and spirituality. So he and I, before he died, we, we recently bonded and were able to get a relationship. So that was really meaningful for me to have before he left. It kind of bridged the gap where I didn't necessarily feel like I needed to keep exploring my my religious side or be super angry about it either. It just helped me cope with what I had been through just to have a relationship with him. When I lost that or lost him in a way, I I really didn't understand how to cope with that to the extent of I would watch my extended family members and immediate family members do either go about their lives and focus on their work or they would go towards religious practices. And I didn't really have the mind to think, oh, well, he's in a good place. He's in a better place. I didn't really have a place for him to be. My exploration started with, where is my dad? I need to know where he is. It, it kind of got me a little crazy where I was just like, how do I even find those answers? And I, I yes, I, I reached out and I searched with other people and I asked questions. But what I really learned in the end that was that I had the answers. There was really nothing outside of me that could figure that out. So I started doing some pretty deep meditative work that I never thought I was capable of. As we start to kind of rewind your life, although life is relatively typical right now, right? Everyone's typical is relative to their own experience. Until you were six years old, you you lived a really atypical experience. Can you can you share what that life was? I can do my best. We'll start with where I was born was um, in 1987 was Osaka, Japan. It seems to have been like a lighter time of the abuse. That wasn't my experience and that wasn't my siblings experience. So from what we know, that was one of the more brutal places. So I was born into that. And the organization that I was born into is called uh, the Family or the Family International. And I guess is known by a couple other names now, but I know it by the family or the family of God. This particular cult, at least from what I've experienced and from what I've looked into, is pretty unique. It's made the list of top most dangerous cults in the world. That has all been very interesting for me to see as I get older the more people come out and talk about it. But from what I've been told, this is not a new thing. People have talked about it quite often. The difference is, and, and all around the world, the difference is only in the last, I don't know, maybe 20, 30 years, maybe not even that long, people have actually started to listen. And so unfortunately, so many people that have cried, you know, this is going on, don't have the ability to prove these types of things for numerous reasons, which I can go into. So for me to talk about it now is actually a really unique experience because growing up, even bringing it up around people, I was I was laughed at, I was, you know, looked at weird. And it wasn't my fear of being judged. It was more of my fear of never being heard or believed. And it kind of pushed me to feel a little crazy a lot of my life. It's interesting you're saying this. I'm relating this to the actual overall experience of being a female. If we look at the current state of things, this new awareness of the male power play that has been really abusing young females for a long time in these really high positions of power and this Me Too movement that's coming out and, and sharing this experience, a very different experience than what you have. But overall, they're two very similar concepts. There's this 
this group of people who have been repressed, who have had these terrible traumatic experiences, and those experiences have not been given validity when they've expressed them. Right. And that's why people don't express them is because they know when they share them, they're not going to be received in a, in a way that, that moves society forward. They're just going to be laughed at or covered up. It could make things worse Yeah. for, for them. And, and that also is so relevant to the domestic violence world. Yeah. Men and women alike almost especially men sometimes will not be believed or heard or, you know, they, they'd be laughed at. And so it's, it applies to that world in my experience as well. And coming from the background that I have, unfortunately, I have a lot of experience in that realm as well. So being someone on the end of being the more submissive person and just kind of allowing things to be, whenever I did feel the need to stand up for myself, it was that complicated thought of, well, is this worth it? Is this even going to be worth it? So yes, definitely. And I, I absolutely appreciate that movement for a lot of reasons. I mean, when it first started, I was like, well, this is a great beginning to a lot of great things, as long as it's not taken to extremes, which is what we're trying to avoid in this world right now. I mean, that was the point of the Me Too movement. I think a, a really important element to remember in this movement is that the point of it is not to me as radical as it needed to be when we were fighting for women's right to vote, for example. We had to literally, quite literally, physically fight for our right to vote. At this point, it's fascinating and a miracle, really, that we as a society and as a whole, hopefully the world, are starting to come around to listening to each other and not being like, oh God, I'm uncomfortable. Right. And so just listening to someone in their uncomfortability and being uncomfortable with them, that is starting, at least in my observations, happening a little more and more. And I'm, I'm happy to see that because it allows people like me and people who have been through these things from, you know, abuse and being shunned to talk about their truth or even just their past, their childhoods, like me. And I'm even related to people who I, I believe they're you know, married with families and they don't have a clue what they went through in their life because they're too ashamed, they're too worried about what's gonna happen if they know. It's a huge problem is being so ashamed of something that's happened to you that you're, you're scared to talk about it. Shame is, is a fascinating vibration, shame and guilt because it's so prevalent. And, and, you know, as, as we actually talked about before, um, the, the love and the fear vibrations are, are really, I'm so interested in this dynamic because love is so by far more powerful than fear. And I truly believe that, but fear has been such a virus in our world that now it's become uh, like more prevalent, more, more established. So we sign up for these beliefs super quick when it comes to like, oh, I shouldn't be saying that, or I shouldn't be putting this on them or whatever it is and the shame and the guilt. And this isn't their problem. This is my problem. The fact that we think it's a problem, you know, the, these beliefs, these conditioned beliefs that we've held onto, we've been taught, especially in America, it's just, it's toxic and it's causing a lot of these issues to continue. And it's nice to see that a lot of parents are changing these these ways of raising their kids. Um, you know, my sister's doing great with that. Very open minded, questioning things, encouraging those things in the youth. That's important. Let's let's dive into that, because 
So let's start out. You grew up in, in this cult, right? In, in, cult. <laughs> and I have to imagine that experience questioning things was not only discouraged, but it was strongly discouraged. And for us to not to not be questioning. Yes. So I'll start here. One of the ways they would begin to mold the minds in this cult um, would be the constant moving. And in my life, I've talked about it so many times with people where I kind of try not to bring it up because it brings up more questions like, why'd you move so much? Were you a military brat? And as I was growing up, I never really questioned so much. I was just like, oh, I was a, you know, missionary, whatever our cover story was. And now I, I, you know, I understand in talking with my siblings and stuff that we moved so much because it was a psychological um, you know, technique for control is a, a mental control a method for control. And it was also a way to avoid authority. And um, when I say that, that's because, you know, at the times where authority started becoming more aware that people were, you know, saying these things more often, it was kind of strange. So they would start checking things out. And because of that, um, the cult leaders would create sort of these things that were basically drills. And, uh, you know, at some points we would be fully clothed in bed and with a, a bag next to us that has everything we need. And we would know what car we would have to sneak out to. Um, we would know, you know, the safe house that we would have to go to and for however long. And, you know, so that type of living can really, I mean, especially as a very small child, um, can really set the stage for some serious nervous issues. <laughs> so, um, that alone creates the the way to it basically creates you to not have the ability to think for yourself. It it causes it limits your ability to think for yourself, I should say. So it's it's constant moving, it's constant control, it's constant you don't have a life of your own if you build roots at all which was not really allowed, but if that happened, it pull you out. So it was it was constant panic about law enforcement. And um, that happened worldwide. Um, and there was court cases even in England, Australia and Argentina, places like that. Um, so, you know, at the place that I remember in Dallas, we called it the ranch and there would be a group of people ready to put on an act for those who would come to the door uh, to our commune or um you know, whatever the case, people coming to the door. And so uh, there would be that group and then the rest of them would hide. And that was just, you know, part of the drill, <laughs> one of the drills. So it was a very nervous way of living. As a kid, there's the nervous component. But as a kid, we, we don't really question the actions of our parents, right? Or the actions of adults, really. And we're, most kids are just kind of taught to just do what, what adults tell you to do. Right. How do you think the the adult component of the community was able to live with the concept of the necessity for safe houses or the necessity for escape vehicles? I think that when, you know, at that point, um, there, there were, again, these people that would speak up, um, but that wasn't so common as people sticking around and being on board with the cause. And as unfathomable as it is, once you look into, you know, the things that they did and, um, you know, how they functioned and all the control, it, it really is the more I get older, more understandable, even though that sounds a little nuts. Um, it's understandable to me 
that people want to belong. And that's a very basic human need. When, like my parents, when you are a very lost individual who has a desperate desire to, you know, be belong and be spiritual and in a very confusing time with very little family, these are perfect ideal candidates for cults because they actually look for people who are not very attached with family, who are lost and desperate, because they are very, very good at molding them to be the people they need. So they don't question, they don't, they don't do those things. I was told that my dad was, well, a lot like me. He did question and he got a lot of punishment for it. And they really did what is by definition torture um, to him whenever he did things that were either selling their business savvy or making money you know, in ways that they didn't approve of, even though they benefited from it, this is about control. They would humble him, put him in his place. And you know, there were, from what I've been told, there were times that he would say, I, I don't want to do this anymore. But it is interesting to think about, let's say there is that person that says, I'm done. They're not alone. They've got family. They, that family there is very likely not done. So it's it's very difficult to get out of situations and leave your loved ones never to see them again. That's a super interesting point that I think people don't don't often appreciate when they're thinking about those situations is that there are you you are tied in through through family connection. Right, and that was one of the reasons my dad didn't leave. My mom was going to keep us kids there. The experience of growing up in this in this culture. There were things designed to shape the way your brain processed thoughts. Right. Do you remember, do you remember experiencing any of those? Oh, yes. <laughs> a couple songs come to mind. In fact, it's, it's interesting. Um, I'll give you a little, a little background on that. Um, so I, I grew up with coloring books and watching videos and movies and singing songs that were specifically constructed for brainwash. And, um, and I remember these very clearly. They're like anything you would buy in the store today, except not anything you would buy in the store. Today. <laughs> um, so the headquarters where you could actually uh, find their literature, propaganda and, and cartoons of child porn and things like the book of Davidito, um, which you can actually Google uh, and stuff like the kitty videos, uh, stuff like that. They are all available at this place called the World Services in Geneva, Sw Switzerland. Um, so that's where David Berg would actually, he himself would send them, you know, his request for content, or he would have head leaders around the world do the same. And so they would all just control what came in and went out. It's interesting. I mean, <laughs> Switzerland, a place with no extradition, just happens to be the headquarters. It's one of the most peaceful places. <laughs> I know. I know. It's amazing. It's, uh, you know, if, if anything, I can't say this man was dumb. <laughs> yeah. He, he had, he had some, some sense about him in, in some ways. I mean, he, this has gone on for well over 60 years, I believe. The attachment that people had to have felt to him. So he started this, he started this, this society, this cult out of a coffee shop in, um, California. Mm -hmm. And it was roughly 50 people kind of loosely interacting in this coffee shop. Which and, is pretty common in those days. There was lots of that going on. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. It's, and it's a perfect time, right? The end yeah. of the 60s, 1968. There's a, there's a lot of things happening culturally. Right. But five years later, he has 10,000 followers and communes around the world. 
Why do you think it was so successful? Well, um, because it didn't start out the way it is now. It started out as missionaries, as, you know, and my parents used to say up and down, like just claim up and down. We got a part, we were part of this because it was the cause we wanted to be a part of. It was a Christian organization. It was missionary work. They would, and they did, they went around the world. They talked about, you know, their Christianity beliefs and they would try to, you know, help people learn about it. And in fact, my, my dad became fluent in, uh, I think three or four languages. And he, when I was born, they were teaching Spanish to Japanese children, you know, these, that's the stuff my parents did. And so they were very interested in teaching and that kind of work, missionary work. So that's how it started out. And I believe a lot of people, considering it's the number one religion in the world, were on board with the message that they were starting out with. It was a beautiful message. It was about love and community. And it just, you know, after some time just was taken too far by the leader where he started becoming absorbed in the stories of the Bible and thinking of himself more like a god, or I believe he started out more like a king where he wanted multiple wives. And so his first wife left him. And Karen Zurg, his second wife, was all about having multiple wives. And she's, in my opinion, equally, if not more crazy than him. So they found each other and made it even more successful. So so you get the right energies together and, and you have the ability to attract a more energy, right? Like we, we attract energy and, and they clearly had to have been very, very powerful, energetic beings. This constant, though, seemingly unavoidable experience where a leader of an organization eventually who gains power eventually corrupts the organization through the power. Um, and if you don't set up massive checks on power, that seems to always 100% of the time be what happened. And even right. sometimes when you set up really brilliant checks, they can only last 300 or so years, it turns out. Human uh, nature. Why do you think that is? What is the universality about cults becoming corrupted by power? Because commune living, right, isn't it, it's there's some really beautiful ideas about sharing resources. Right. But somehow corruption, greed always destroys the, 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 the beautiful component. Why? Well, and you know, what helped me understand that there is hope for that to be possible um, and not so much be corrupted was the story of Ram Das and his way of living communal and um, how that worked and how there's lots of that going on in India and it works for them. It's a beautiful way of living. But when it, unfortunately to me, to me, when it becomes more of a dictatorship religion. It's more of this extreme religion element coupled in with community living that can absolutely disrupt that harmony. That I, I think that harmony in community is absolutely possible. We can do these things. I think that it's important, though, to not have to need a one mindset. We, we have to learn how to accept everyone as they are. And that is way easier said than done. We all have been programmed so much to think things. We will consciously think, I do not think that about this person. And then they'll come by and we're like, why am I so annoyed by this person right now? And you'll remember, oh, because I was taught this, this, and this, and I don't mean to, but that's something I now have to look at and work on. These are conditioned beliefs that we've signed up for so young and have had them so long that now they're so 
imprinted in us that whether or not we want them, they're there. And conscious work is how we we get through that and learn how to accept people as a whole. And so just to answer your question, I really think it's that extremism, the extreme element to, to it. How has how has Ramdas Satguru these these well known um, really powerful energetic being? How have they been able to avoid the corruption? You know, he even talks about putting you know his ego in check quite you know often throughout his life, and he grew up in a very privileged world where he didn't you know need to want for anything. However like the Me Too movement, like domestic violence. Another one to point out is sexuality. He was a homosexual. He had to hide everything about him and what he wanted. And he just rode along for the ride with his family and what they expected of him, which I believe is why he cut off everything and went on his spiritual journey, which changed his entire process. So I I think that there is more more of do we listen to that in ourselves or are we ignoring it? Because it's in everyone. And I think for, for at least for Ram Dass, I think he was hungry for it. Some of us are so hungry to find this part of ourselves. To, to And some of us are just comfortable and they're uncomfortable. They're, they're not willing to put in the effort or the work that it takes to actually get that deep. And so I, I think that really this, it's this facade way of life. We, we build our boxes, we stay in our boxes. And the ones that are willing to step out of those boxes are the ones that can actually do so much for themselves, for others. And it's through personal growth that we can see global growth. And you, and he's a great example for that. Personal growth, is, it really is it's the key to creating global change. And everybody wants to change the planet and nobody wants to change themselves. And yet that's where it starts. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, That's a, that's a really interesting, it's a really interesting insight. Um, Your history, given your history, would you, would you be open to communal living? Like what, what are your thoughts on communal living? What a great question. I've actually, for whatever reason, desired more of a communal type living, not as a commune or as an, any organization, but I've always been very um, on board with barter systems and trade services and, you know, the, the life of they need you, you're there, you need them, they're there. <laughs> I am so it. I am so much like my dad. It's so fun to see old pictures of him. I'm like, oh my God, you were so a hippie. <laughs> and that really, when you look into when you look into the family, it was a bunch of really spiritual hippies who yeah. who started down this road and power, greed, corruption, whatever it was, it it went really dark. And that that is, I think, something that can happen with really idealistic people is they can become really attached to ideas and then the ideas can be shifted and they can stay attached to those ideas. And that, that I think, is a 
is an unfortunate thing about people who view the the good in everyone. Right. Because they Especially, don't necessarily see the dark. Exactly. And and it's also when that when they're fed that validation for so long that like you you have all the answers, you just you've shown us so much. It's all, you know, coming so clear because of you. Even people who do seminars struggle with releasing their ego at the end of the seminar. You know, Tony Robbins talks about it even, you know, um, Peter Sage talks about it. There's there's a lot to be said, even with counselors. There's um, cases where people fall in love with their counselors because they help them through so much. So there's a God complex here where you're you're helping people and you're, you know, you're high from that opportunity to do so much for the world. And then you're getting all of this reassurance of you did this. This was you. Even if you're trying hard to say, no, this was, you know, your process, whatever it can really get to you no matter who you are. And now at that point, after all the missionary work and the traveling and everything that was basically beautiful work, after that's established and he's got 10,000 plus followers, it's pretty easy to switch at that point. For sure. And even if you lose 2,000 followers. You've got enough to get more. For sure. The the sustainability of, of the family, the, the cult that you were involved in, how did how did they maintain the ability to expand? So you're saying they get more. How, what how, what was the strategy? So or how music, was it financially supported? Right. So music was a huge part of um, what they used as a seller in in the family. Songs were written mostly by Jeremy Spencer. I don't know if you knew that, but uh, he was part of the famous '70s rock band Fleetwood Mac. And um, he left that band to join the family. <laughs> so he he wrote all of our songs that are stuck in my head. And um, <laughs> and so, yeah, we, we weren't allowed to listen to obviously anything other than that of what they constructed. And uh, so we would even perform these songs. We'd go out as families and, you know, we were a family of nine, but we I believe I remember us being like the smallest family everywhere we went. There were 13, there was 15, there was 20. There was just tons of kids because that's what you did. You just made more worker bees. So, um, and, and more people to grow up in this mindset so you don't have to do it from a different age. So it, it really was smart. Um, but so there was, there was this going out and singing and, and doing these things. And then there was witnessing, which was a way, what I remember called witnessing. It was a way they used to convert people to Christianity. And this actually had nothing to do with uh, the cult itself or making money. This was just straight, you know, proselytizing, uh, <laughs> I can't say the word, but just straight conversion. It, it was like involving saving their souls and saying prayers and stuff like that. Um, but since the cults claimed to be missionaries and a nonprofit, even though they weren't asking for money and they weren't doing anything regarding the cults, they would get donations, they would sell products, they would have these things happen because they were missionary work people. That's that's what the facade was. Um, and so they would just end up buying whatever we were selling. Okay. That that's pretty re- I mean, that's pretty remarkable, right? That requires some significant talent. Absolutely. And we were very musical. Um, my, my dad and mom, they were both singers. My dad played guitar and different instruments. My, my siblings were very beautiful girls and they sang really, really well. They could dance, you know, so they would fast learn these things and they would just dress them alike and send them out. And that attracted people. When you, when you escaped from the cult, was it your entire family? 
It was eight of us. My uh, oldest sister, she was 15 at the time, I believe, or around, or no, she was a little older than that, but at 15. My, my biological mother had left her in Japan. She was pregnant and she was married off. And then all of us eight left and went to the United States. Do you so, remember the escape at all? I mean, you call it an escape, which I think is a really interesting thing. Right. So... You know, it's fascinating. My memories don't match other people's memories. So um, I've been told, you know, my biological mother says that we voluntarily left. It was no big deal. She says that about a lot of things. And then my my sister is convinced that she remembers we were excommunicated. I remember leaving in the middle of the night. <laughs> so there's so, all these memories. But I do know uh, this much that my dad, he... Like I said before, he was very innovative. He was very much the entrepreneur. And before even joining the cult, he had traveled a lot. So he had a lot of contacts. He knew a lot of people that didn't bode well for them. He was making, you know, a little bit of waves here and there because he was doing so well. He was basically outshining them in many ways. And so they would like, like I said, they liked the profit, but they didn't like the spectacle. They didn't want him to be someone that thinks they can get away with whatever. So they kept a short leash on him the best they could. And so that that kind of, you know, um, uh, hippie mentality never really left him. <laughs> he, was, he was still that rebel type. Maybe that's what I saw because I got in trouble a lot in the cult. <laughs> I would constantly do that rebellious thing where I was like, this doesn't make sense. Or I'd ask why, which was a terrible question. Terrible question. I'm sure never that's asked. probably the worst question. Yeah, it's the worst. What yeah. do you mean? That's not even in the dictionary. So, yeah, I do remember a lot of that, that type of behavior and um, unfortunately, my mother had been so heavily abused growing up that she was, again, prime for this type of mentality. I think that's another thing to point out that these these people, they look for the desperation in people who, I mean, they're hopeful that they've been through some some stuff in their life so that they are that desperate to join up and not leave. My mom, she has um, developed that mentality. She, ever since we've left, has always been the head of some church or, you know, whatever it is. Is. And so she's never fully left mentally, you know, even when we left. Everybody, everybody has their own reality, right? We all, we all come from and, and we all live our own experience and we can never live someone else's experience. But the fact that the fact that you have so many different memories of, of the event, how closely correlated do you think that is to the fact that you had so much programming done to your brain? Right. Yes. And I have a lot that I don't remember. And they're called blackouts. And there's about three, three year blackout. And um, I think there's some things, it's always a fascinating thing for me to think about, like, why did this stick and this didn't? Um, that's, a, it's always interesting. And it's always fascinating for me to just understand the human brain and, and trauma. And then you take someone or let's say a couple people who have been through these things, these almost exact experiences, and they're taking two different ways. They're, they're going about their lives in two different ways. So again, I think I really believe in individualism. That's why I started my ISA campaign because everyone is so different. It's so difficult to say that one shoe fits all, like when it comes to brain and trauma. And um, I took things so differently than my siblings did. And so the 
the whole memory thing has always been fascinating to me. Some of them have like, I believe my little sister has photographic memory. I could not imagine. She remembers everything. And, and so, and she was only four when we left, but, um, and I know that we, we were in a place where not much happened with them at the time. But like I said, it really didn't matter whether we were there or not. Our parents never left. And so that created our lifestyle of being like a cult. And that was very difficult to get out of. So you, so you, you escape. Either you were excommunicated, you escaped in the middle of the night, or you just left. Right? Like one right. of those. What, whatever, whatever happens, you've, you've, you've we left. Right. You settled down um, elsewhere. Yes. What is life like then? We went from, I believe, we left Colorado, the commune in Colorado, um, and we went to Arizona. And at the time. This is me getting to know my mom, really, because I didn't really know who she was. We all had family names. Um, and when I say family, I mean biblical. Um, my family was the Psalms, like the, the passage in the Bible, Psalms. And it was David and Mercy Psalms were my parents' names, which are not their names. <laughs> and so that can confuse very like little little kids can be very confused when first of all you're like okay i thought your name was this and now it's also this second of all you're also my aunt you're my aunt and you're my aunt and you're all related to different people so it was very difficult to kind of understand what family was at all i had no idea what these things meant or the significance of these titles to to have cousins you know aunt uncle mom dad so essentially so, everyone that you were living with was was introduced to you as if they were a a blood relative right this is auntie deborah yeah. this is uncle peter and they were all biblical names. And yeah, that's all I remember of these people, which is a great method for the cult to keep um, very quiet. And people going in and talking about them, they say these names, these people don't exist. So they're almost like aliases. Um, oh, that's super interesting. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a very smart way to keep control as well, because, you know, it's also an identity thing. You're taking everything they used to know and you're changing it. You're now this person. And I remember my oldest sister, um, I'm bringing her up quite a few times because really, obviously she was older. And so she had seen and been through a lot um, at, at just being older because just being older, you are given a family name, you are impregnated and married off, you know, these things. And so um, she was, and she, I remember her name as Renee. I did not know her real name. <laughs> and then when we got out, life was like, okay, who the hell are you? And <laughs> what is this? And where are we? And what's going on? It was incredibly confusing. And it caused, and this is very um, typical, actually, from ex-members and also just uh, sexual abuse victims, um, it, that that mentality can make you, that energy will just seem very victim. And no matter what you do, you are a victim. That's your, that's your energy now. And out in a world we didn't understand, my older siblings, you know, that were newly teenagers and things like this, um, really terrible things kept happening to them. So, you know, my sister was repeatedly raped throughout her life. There was all sorts of things that continuously happened outside of the cult. So I think it's incredibly important for people because I do talk with ex-members here and there, not from my cult, but from others. And they 
they struggle the most with life because they still have these ideals and these issues that they're like, like we talked about earlier, I know this isn't what I choose to think, but it's in there. And now I have to deal with that. And so people around me, they don't know how to deal with that. And now I'm in solitude again. It's a very hard way to live. Yeah, that is, that's really terrifying. And so many people from the domestic violence situations are the same. It's, I, you know, I've been in um, some shelters and as, as someone who wouldn't leave certain situations and that became a mentality, you just, you get through it or you deal with it or you fix it or whatever it is. And um, I would say with terribly toxic men or boys and, um, and I would end up in these situations. And it was fascinating to me to hear these families talk and, and hear like what they've been through and what they allow with their children and what they don't. And, and that mentality of just like, I'm more afraid of the life I don't know than the life I do that I'm going to stick with this is it's fascinating. It's really interesting. I think it, it's interesting. It key, I keep going back to this concept that you, you mentioned earlier on, which was love is the most powerful vibration, but fear is, is seemingly a, a dominant vibration right now. So if we have this really powerful vibration that um, can, can solve all the problems, and we have this, this other vibration that seems to be creating all the problems, my theory would be is fear is is easy. Fear is primal and and love requires it requires you to push into fear almost because in order to express love, you have to be willing to be open to fear. Right. You have to be willing to open to be hurt. And Absolutely. and we're all scared of being hurt. Right. Why do you think or do you think that fear is is winning because vulnerability is difficult when people are not willing like you said you just pinpointed it when people are not willing to get out of this this familiar way of going about their life or to go against the tide because families can be quite a tide belief systems in in families are so forceful so strong that to break away from certain things can be alienating it can be you can just end up in a solitude type life which people view as super negative and to me I especially after losing my dad solitude is ah it's my haven so to be with your yourself is so complicated for some people. And I understand. I really do. I growing up, it was very difficult to be with my thoughts, but I was so used to being on my own because a lot of the punishment in the cult was being locked in closets and memorizing the Bible and certain things. So it was a different aspect to me, the solitude way of living, because I was grateful to be free. Even though I was still being locked in rooms by my parents, I was freer. <laughs> so I, I appreciated the step of being a little more free. However, there was almost always this ideation of, of suicide and not living anymore because it was so hard. It's, it, you become this raw nerve of, I, I need to learn, I need to understand, I don't know how, there's too much input, I've been messed with too much. And you become this raw nerve to life that you don't have a choice. You have to be vulnerable. Vulnerability is no longer a choice. I, I didn't really have the ability to act like I was okay sometimes. Like when you've been beaten down for so long, you can become numb and you can get to that place where you learn how to 
block it all out and and just go about your day and become an actress. I've seen it and and a lot of people. For me personally, that was not an option. I freaked a lot of people out because I was almost always emotionally unstable in a lot of ways. So that kind of vulnerability was scary to people. It was real. It was weird. And what people don't understand, they label right away. They immediately think it's crazy. It's not acceptable. And the main thing, like if we go back to why cults exist, is to belong. And if you're not belonging in society because now you're weird or you're off or you're you're something that goes against the tide, then it's too much work. Vulnerability is so powerful and so scary. Anything powerful is scary. Anything worth having in life takes a lot of vulnerability and patience. And that does mean work in a lot of ways. But to me, I view work so differently because even though I am my only job in many ways, I think that work in people's eyes, like they, they, they identify with it. What do you do? Oh, that's what you are. That's who I am. I'm a plumber. I'm this. That's who I am. And I, I didn't grow up with that mindset. I wasn't taught to get a job and go to school. That that actually was discouraged. Do not become a part of society. <laughs> it's bad. Um, education, discouraged. Do not. My sister at, I think she was, oh gosh, maybe 14. She enrolled me and my siblings in school and got in trouble for it. But once you're in, you're in because it's illegal to take us out. So she she was smart enough to do that. I mean, education, healthcare, all these things were so discouraged. So I grew up with a totally different view. And I had an opportunity to see things differently where I was like, what you're viewing as who you are, which is your job and work is something you constantly talk about. You, you just hate, you hate the people, you hate this. And now all I'm hearing is you hate yourself. So I'm really confused. Why is everyone doing this? And so this, this rat race, this money hungry way of living, um, became really interesting to me because money wasn't something that came up before. <laughs> it was always survival or, you know, whatever it is they had planned. But money wasn't something we had to worry about necessarily as kids. So I start hearing that people, you know, do these things for money. And I'm like, why? Because you need things. Okay, that's interesting. So we have all these ways of coming out and showing up in the world. And in our culture, we like to, at least generally, like to show up in a way where we have nice things. We have respectable jobs. We have these degrees that are pieces of freaking papers. We have all these things that we're so proud of. And yet we're so lost, so discouraged. We're sick all the time. We can't battle. We battle with relationships. We, we can barely do things. Uh, we eat poorly because we don't have time to eat well or take care of ourselves. These these things are all these beliefs are like, oh, well, that's just life. Oh, that's just life. Well, that's why it still happens. Because people think this is just an acceptable way to live. This is actually the expected way to live. And when you go back to women <laughs> in this scenario, we were we are normally, generally, very generally speaking, expected to be mothers most of the time. And so this this expectation of the way you're supposed to live, especially early in life, you know, it, it becomes all this pressure. It's it's too difficult to do in the first place. It's way more difficult to question. And it's even more difficult to do do this 
question it, and then talk about people who were super excited you were doing it in the first place. Like, that's very scary. That's way more scary than I'm going to work really hard for four years. I think you're pulling out a lot of pieces that have a lot of overlap in the Venn diagram, right? The the idea that females grow up with, that they'll be mothers, I don't think most people are necessarily acutely aware of the amount of of societal programming based around that. But if you look at the, everybody knows that the toys are specifically designed, right? But I think I'm looking at how the the toys are to play mother. Toys for girls are designed really to teach you to, to be a mother. And it's very, very interesting to see that type of societal brainwashing, more or less. Right. The gender specific coloring and, you know, and it's still it's still very prevalent today, even in people who are you know, conscious thinkers and, you know, they're still going to go with that that programming because it's so ingrained. A lot of people talk about this now. So it's, it's, you know, it's uh, more comfortable to bring up, but just again, the way we raise our kids and teaching them what is flirting, for example, um, and what, you know, if a guy comes up to you, pushes you, punches you, hurts you in some way, makes fun of you, bullies you, that apparently means he likes you. Um, those things start a girl off thinking really, really detrimental thoughts that, you know, this guy pushed me. Oh, he just really loves me. And that, that can be very harsh. We grow up looking at our parents like gods. We don't know what the concept of God is when we're very little. We have no idea, at least from what we understand. So what we think is God are the examples we have, whatever they are, whatever parental figure figures you have. So we, we absorb things super easy. It's, you know, if you think about, we don't talk for quite a while after we're born. So words don't mean a whole lot to us. We watch everything. And that's kind of how I feel with even with, with dog training, not to compare <laughs> babies to dogs, but there's, there's a fascinating similarity where they don't know what we're saying. They're watching. And so this, this monkey see, monkey do thing is just as important as what we tell them. So you can teach them all day. No, that doesn't mean a guy likes you. Watch out for this, but then go home and let it happen. And there's mixed signals. So you you spoke a little bit about uh, how how you view how how people view their parents, right? That people view their parents as gods, and they they know everything and they are everything. How did you view your parents growing up? Oh, well, I had to reread my diary to really understand that. And I have quite a few diaries um, that were started and not finished. And, you know, it's it's really interesting to see that that mentality back then, because growing up, I was highly suicidal. I didn't have these dramatic attempts. I didn't have marks all over my body or anything. Um it was just this constant, incessant thinking of, I just don't want to live. This is too hard. Everything is just too hard. And what's the point? What What's the point? I'm just going to grow up and be, what, more crazy for the world? So there were a lot of thoughts thinking that, you know, I'm not, there's, this isn't worth living. So watching my parents um, and and then becoming more educated as I got older, I, I realized, you know, my my dad had a really loving essence about him. Um, that was very, it's very difficult to, to even talk about because he, he had such a Jekyll and Hyde thing going. Uh, he was brutally abusive to my siblings, my mother. Um, and, and that, 
that is a difficult thing to deal with. He he is what set me up for a lot of what I went through. So the, growing up, I would blame him. I would tell, you know, myself and others, you know, my dad is the reason I'm, you know, I do these things and I'm attracted to these types of people. And it's so frustrating for me. And I would blame him and I would blame my mom for not fighting harder or for not caring more, for being not being a mother at all. And it was very easy to blame them. When you go back to that fear being easy, it's so easy to blame. Blame is the probably the most easiest thing. That's where gossiping comes in. People blame so fast. I got an offender bender, not my fault. I did, you know, I ate a donut. That's because of this that happened. You know, it's never your fault. <laughs> so that blaming mentality or whatever, um, that, you know, I... I adapted a few things, few things that I would see in my, my personality. And I was just, I was very disappointed that this was the person that I knew I wasn't, but I've come out to be. It's, it's, you know, the main thought was, why did you have, I'm number seven. (laughs) I was like, you weren't good at six. (laughs) So I was thinking how irresponsible, how, you know, selfish these things were incredibly. And it really set me up for thinking about parenthood in general. in in the world for myself. I've never even as a very small child talking about those kids, uh, the, the girl toys, I was given, you know, a doll or something when we came out into the, into society. And I was just not interested in these types of playing or, or anything because you see the way children are treated, the way they're used, um, the way they're manipulated and controlled. And then I, I'm realizing, you know, this is how I was raised. These are the people I come from why in the world would I have kids? And that that was the thought very, very, very young. And to me, that was the responsible thought. So the way I viewed my parents was very irresponsible and selfish. And yet after me, they had twins. (laughs) This, (laughs) I'm, (laughs) a family of of nine is pretty, pretty um, interesting, right? I mean, that's, it's a, it's a massive, it's a, the reality is, it's an incredible burden on on a lot of uh, a lot of different things, and I, I I think we're we have to I think it would be advantageous for humans to understand the our current state is of a ridiculously over-consuming creature, and the more of us there are, the bigger overall problem all of us are going to have because unless we find a way to drastically reduce our ability or desire to consume we are going to outstrip the capacity of the planet that we live on and we're going to have some significant future problems and you know it's i couldn't agree more and what gives me hope <laughs> when I, I watch things that are so fascinating and, and relevant, I think, like Before the Flood with Leonardo DiCaprio, it's very much encouraged watching that. Um, the way I'm seeing things now, because when the election happened, I know I'm bouncing around, when the election happened, it got me into such a fear because it was the week I lost my dad. I had all these thoughts of fear of like, oh God, we're going to be basically in Hitler world. Women are going to be in cages. I was ready to buy a weapon. I didn't even believe in doing those things. So I, I was all over the place and I, I just, I stopped after I realized that this was the campaign I wanted to do at the time. When that came to me, I stopped and I started thinking, you know, this could be what the world needs to shake up a little, just, just wake up a little. And it's, it's not necessarily sad that it has to happen this way. It is what it is. Um, but we are starting to, so all of that to say, 
I believe that we have that, that issue in this world. And I also see something fascinating. I see women, intelligent women. And in fact, they are, are, there's a statistic of, you know, a very high percentage of women that are very intelligent that are starting to say, I don't want kids. It's becoming more and more common and more acceptable for women of high intelligence that are successful to say, I just don't want kids. And so that's going to minimize things a smidge. Mm-hmm. We're also going to be adopting more in, in those ways. And I'm also seeing a couple of other things like, you know, I have a few nieces and nephews, a few that have Asperger's and um, autism. And, you know, I've seen this for so long in my life that I'm starting to think differently about it. We've labeled this as a disorder. We've labeled it as, you know, they are maybe a different mindset than what is normal. But to me, I'm seeing this as maybe an opportunity for for the world and, and, and us as a whole to kind of scale back in a way where they're becoming this, this personality is less social. It's very bright. It's, you know, a loving type of, um, personality, but they're not necessarily affectionate. So there's a fascinating dynamic to their brilliance and their emotional states that are, I think, kind of tugging at this, this, you know, pendulum swing of overpopularity in the world. That's, that's a very interesting insight. Uh, I want to circle back to the to the concept that you brought up about um, this constant thought or being on the precipice of suicide. And um, suicide is a really uncomfortable subject for people. And I um, I know personally, like there's a there's a there's a recoil that happens when you when you just broach the subject. Right. Um, one of the one of the things about the cult story that I have found the most fascination um, or curiosity just there's there's this video of the founder's son. So David Berg and Karen Zerby have have this son um, Rick. Right. And he was he was abused probably probably more than anyone else maybe not but he was definitely abused and they had like built this life around essentially abusing him because they thought that by doing it he that he they would be able to prove that how right their their living path was right it was he was the poster child for their cause and he wasn't even you know dna related to david himself david at the time was too old to procreate so he had karen flirty fish which was you know another method of uh, recruiting and stuff and so she went out and got pregnant and that was that and he he left well he committed suicide he committed a murder suicide right he murdered his nanny and he was hoping to kill his mom right and that statement is pretty horrific yes and he left a 45 minute hour hour 45 minutes to an hour long suicide video tape mm-hmm. um, kind of explaining his his thought process and the rationale and what he was going to do and it's uh, disturbing and gut-wrenching and horrific to watch in a lot of ways and at the same time while he's speaking he's using this very clear rational thought process and explaining all the horrific 
horrific things that have happened to him. And he, he, he's recording this video in Tucson, Arizona, so just south of where we are. And he's talking about how he went to these weapons trainings. And while he was at these weapons trainings, he was told by the law enforcement officer who was giving him the training that if he were to walk in on someone sexually abusing his child, he, in Arizona, has the legal right to kill that person. And it's a justified homicide. Right. And he essentially killed a woman who abused him his entire Mm -hmm. life. He didn't walk in on it. So it wasn't justifiable. But it is, I don't know if it's a worthwhile watch because it's never going to leave your brain if you watch it. If you watch it, you're never going to forget it. Right. But it's a really, really fascinating um, experience. To put yourself in that place is terrifying. Right. And And you've essentially lived that life. I am very fortunate to not have gone through the things he went through, um, but the, the lifestyle of it is enough to make you get into that mindset of uh, this is just, it's too much. Um, you come out into a world you don't know, that's hard enough. It's, you know, it sounds extreme, maybe to some people, but the more we learn about the way life is lived daily in North Korea, the more I relate to them and the more this cult sounds like that. So it's it's very much a mentality that is incredibly difficult to live with forever. After going through such chaos on a daily basis and so much brainwashing and identity crisis after identity crisis, constant questioning everything except you're not allowed to question, it it can be so mind you know screwing that people just can't handle it. And that's majority of the time the case. A lot of ex-members do commit suicide. What he did was, I remember when that happened, I remember it was this huge thing. I remember thinking, no, that didn't happen because that would make it real. And it came out and my sister was like, told you it wasn't crazy. Here it is. And, um, there was articles and all this stuff that would come that came out. And I, I remember thinking, you know, like, I'm not ready to watch this. It took me a long time, but I heard about it. And eventually I watched it and I was like that, that mentality, that rational, but still that energy of that's really eerie energy that was super familiar, very, very familiar. And it was, it made me shake. I got really upset And, you know, for years it took me, oh man, it's taken me so much processing and work through so much to even be able to sit here and talk about it right now. I would quiver, I would start shaking, I'd have to stop and it would be confusing. I wouldn't even really understand why I thought I was okay. So it lives in your body, it lives in you and, you know, how far you come in life. Every time, you know, I see my siblings do incredible things and I see myself do incredible things. They're incredible to me because I know where we came from. To me, if I get up and I function and I do things, I'm a survivor. That's amazing. So if I get up and do things to help people, to give back, to learn and grow my own personal being, that is a step that is it's really difficult for the average person to do. For for someone that comes from something like that, it's like, no, I'd rather kill myself. That's way too hard. Or completely deny it ever happened. I think both of those are, are much easier than, than processing what actually happened and moving forward. So, Absolutely. So tell tell me about ISA. You have you have the shirt on. 
I created this because of the extremism I saw coming out right as the election happened. And as a woman, as a white woman in America, I was put into several little categories of where I should be. And I just thought that was very interesting. And especially after the way my dad passed, he had struggled for four years before that because he was in a near fatal car wreck. And between the chronic pain and the mental agony, it was too much for him. And he left us. And at that time, I thought to myself, every time I talk about him committing suicide, people are going to have an idea. They're going to immediately have an idea about him, about what happened, and especially if they know the background of where we come from. And so I, I thought that was interesting. And I started paying attention. And because I am someone who I was a pharmacy tech for a couple of years, and I was in that world enough to understand that was just not what I believed in the world, these this world of legal murderers. And so I leaned towards the med- medicinal qualities of cannabis. And with my dad, I started, you know, experimenting with him and his health care and helping him as much as I could and realizing that, you know, even throughout my own experience, of course, with cannabis, but just when someone's suffering that much, they're going through so much and they're ready to kill themselves. And people are still saying cannabis is wrong. That really was interesting to me because I thought, well, but we're all so different. Why? How can you speak for that person? That doesn't make sense to me. So I see this extremism with women and this this movement and, and people taking it a little far. And I see this with the cannabis industry and, and pharmaceutical companies and the battle with that going on. And I see all this stuff going on almost at the same time because the loss of my dad did this. And I was like, you know what? I'm a freaking human and so are you. Can you fight me on that? And it just dawned on me, why don't we create a movement here? Because no one can tell me they're not a human. And if they do, maybe they have an explanation. I'm happy to hear it. (laughs) At this point, as far as I know, we're all human. And so I just wanted us to remember that, that, that very important element of you're not your skin color. You're not your name. You're not your dad's name. You're a human being and I am connected to you. And if I'm ready to hate you, that must be a reflection of what I do to myself. And that's the movement's purpose is to realize that we're not accepting the way we think we are. So many people are so ready to preach the positive mentality and to post these memes and all these things. And then you meet them, they meet conflict and you watch them and they're not practicing what they're preaching at all. In fact, they're probably preaching for themselves. Everyone treats others the way they treat themselves. If we have certain programming that's our job. It's our responsibility to, to work on that because we're, we're all one. If I believe I hate you, then I must hate something about me. It's, a, it's an interesting thing. It goes right along with what I feel like it, it, it's required. It's what it has to happen in order for us to fix what's, what's happening right now. Mm-hmm. is right now we're all starting with, we're all, I'll generalize, we're all starting with um, the other side is trying to destroy our our country. Right. And I think if we stopped and we just started with, both sides want to have the best country possible. Um, and we probably disagree on the majority of re- of ways that we have the best country. But at the same time, although we may disagree on how we get there, we we have a desire, an end goal that's the same. So why don't we, instead of talking about how you're so destructive and, and I'm so destructive, 
start on, uh, we share a common goal. And right. what are the things that we can do? Where's the overlap that we actually have? Let's start there. And then we right. can back out to the disagreement. Right. There's a beautiful video on YouTube that you just made me think of that came out around the same time as when I created this campaign. And so many things came out like this that were beautiful to see. But this particular one stood out to me. And it was a video of getting, you know, a good maybe 100 people in a room and asking the teachers to come forward and asking the, you know, dancers to come forward. And they would just pick random categories and they'd just say, if you have a job, come forward, you know, whatever it was. And you would get these dynamic, just strangely dynamic people that, that walk forward, but yet they have this thing in common and they have, like you said, this common goal. So there's absolutely, you're absolutely right. There's always this, this core. And, and I think that this, you know, my way is better, my way is better idea is of, it's absolutely driven by fear. What if they get their way? And then that means this for me, no, 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 we have to fight this because I'm too scared of what that could mean for me. And I think that that is the biggest problem here. This, oh, you're a, this supporter. Oh, you're this. And you know, well, now you're, you're putting me in a box. We haven't even met. <laughs> so I don't really know what you're talking about. You know, there's lots of family members who have and friendships and everyone that I've heard so much since then that have been driven apart and torn apart. And I was tempted to do similar things and stuff. But I've had such practice <laughs> with different belief systems <laughs> throughout my life that the only time it really irks me or I let it irk me because that really we should all start acknowledging nothing makes us feel things. It's, it's really up to us. And, and what I allow get to me sometimes really has to do with when we are hurting others, when we are actively painfully hurting others, that's when I'm like, all right, something's got to give here. <laughs> so I am, I'm all for a cause that is for something, not against it. Like mother Teresa said, how do we, how do we get more people to buy into that? I think I'm hoping that, you know, again, this, this pendulum swing of, of the balance of life, whatever that means to you, um, is starting to kind of neutralize to where we're starting to see these radical extremes, but we're seeing them in this strange way. Like it's not just hippie and drugs and abusive lifestyle, freedom lifestyle. It's more of questioning and being more open to and receptive to feedback and these types of things. Maybe I'm not diving into work, but I'm open to hearing some things. I'm seeing this in millennials. Okay. Okay. It's, it's, a, it's a fascinating shift. Um, there's a lot to be said about millennial group <laughs> as, as a whole. I think there's a ton of negativity and negativity around it with people, especially older people. This is the group to look at right now. I think I fit in this group, even though I don't necessarily, I wasn't raised in this culture. And I think it's really important to point out the positive things, which has been hard for me to do because making friends and, you know, creating my own little community type, you know, support system has been a challenge with people my age, especially nowadays with the, the technology and, and expectations and stuff on us. But entrepreneurism is at an all time high. We are questioning things more. We are breaking away from systems more. We're starting to understand Bitcoin and things like this. And, you know, we're opening up as a as a whole, because what I think is happening is the traditional thinkers don't have a leg to stand on anymore. We have a lot of science backing up things. We have a lot of proof. 
And so as time goes on, we're at a very slow evolutionary crawl, in my opinion. But I do think we're at a place where we're kind of crawling out of these dark ages, where some of us are starting to, I say waking up very loosely, because that is used so commonly, this this woke, this woke thing. But I... I say waking up as in I'm not just sleepwalking anymore. I'm not just doing what is expected of me by myself or by others. I'm now breaking that pattern and saying, what if? And that is happening more than I've ever seen. Because when I was growing up, I was told, don't talk about these things. Don't talk about medicines you take. Don't talk about whatever it is that's off or abnormal or that could make you different because that's not acceptable now. It's not acceptable to just fit in. What makes you you? That's what you hear with millennials. What makes you you? What what makes you an individual? Sure, there's a lot of trendy things. I, I get that. But I really do also see this individualism type thing going on, which is encouraging to me. So what makes you you? <laughs> what makes me me? I am a whirlwind of things. Um, because of my crazy life and um, my ability to be vulnerable very young and to have these insights for whatever reason that I didn't want children. I wanted to help children. Um, I wanted to do things in the world very young age. Um, I remember being nine years old thinking I'm going to make my suffering worth something, meaning I'm going to make sure that I didn't go through this for nothing and that other people don't have to experience these things because I can actually help. And I didn't know how that was going to happen. And it's been very, it's a lot of pressure to think that. But for me, um, I keep evolving. I have been what I call, I've lived like seven lifetimes in these 30 years. I've been different people at different times. Um, I've, I've, I'm a survivor, but I'm also a warrior in ways. Um, I don't want to be a soldier. I think there's a difference. <laughs> I don't fight for anything, but I will be the warrior when it's called for. And I think that we all have that in us. I think yoga is a beautiful way to explore that um, and meditation. And then, of course, floating and, and rest therapy. Yeah, so let's... Let's dive into some of the ways that you have put all of the pieces together to become you. The existence that the existence that you were born into and grew up in has its share of traumatic events. I think traumatic events um, on young children often create relatively dysfunctional adults, and and you seem to have. Um, you seem to be really grounded and connected and in, in tune with yourself. And, and that inherently requires a lot of work. Yeah, it's, it's definitely not, um, something you can just, you know, wake up and, and be one day, especially coming from like, like we've been talking about, but it's, it's also been just this uphill battle in many ways. So you come from this community mindset and then you're basically thrown out in the world by yourself. And you want the support of a community, but this is a totally different world. So that's just not the way it works. Not, not usually. You can't just find the people you can trust right away and build your little support group. So I thought that I would have to mold to what society expected of me, much like many people. To me, that wasn't the easy 
way out, but it was the only way out. And so through that, I became um, very involved in the image industry. I uh, became a model as an independent traveling model. I didn't necessarily want to be a part of agencies, so I never really sought to do those things. Um, but I was because I was very interested in my freedom. And <laughs> so um, I I went that route because growing up, my siblings were models all around the world. They were used in those ways as well to either gain what we needed in some way or money or something. So I was the only one growing up that was not either allowed to or picked to model. So when I was a pharmacy technician, I was recruited to do an MMA calendar and I realized this was really good money. I was in school. And I was also probably trying to prove something to myself, like I can do this too. So I got really into the image industry. And at, let's say, I think it was about three or four years into modeling. I had traveled all around the country. I was doing very well. But I was online, this glamorous, you know, had an incredible life traveling, making great money, doing all these incredible things, working with amazing people, stars, all this stuff. And behind all of that was this tortured individual who absolutely hated the industry. I couldn't stand almost everyone I worked with. There's a handful of people I keep in my life today because they are actually beautiful people. So I'm grateful for that. And, and there was a lot of incredible experiences in traveling. But for the most part, that that was one of the most brutal experiences, just being a model, because probably also very much because of my background, that control. And, you know, when you're posing, when you're doing things, you're just an object. So that that was very hard on me. I did that for about six, seven years. And in the middle of that, um, my at about 24, I or right before my 24th birthday, I got a DUI in Arizona, which, as you know, is no joke. And at that time, I was not a troubled child. I didn't do anything wrong. I was a college going, stuck to myself kind of person and just did modeling. And so I was, I was distraught. I was traumatized. I had no support, no family. And that system there is, is no joke. It's, it's really traumatizing. So I was terrified. And I turned to drinking. I just kept drinking. I, my license was taken from me. So I stayed at home and basically just drank all the time for the summer of not having a license. And I bring that up to say this desperate time of my life, this no, con I was completely out of control. I had no vehicle. I had to get to school somehow. It's the middle of summer, couldn't even get water. And I'm now facing thousands of dollars I don't have and courts and all this stuff. And so I'm terrified. And all I want to do is go to school and get through it. And so I'm in that place again, that desperate, manipulated, controlled place again. And I ended up gravitating towards someone I thought had the ability to get me through all of this, um, who I thought was well known and did well in the industry. And that uh, person ended up after we got together for about 11 months, almost ending my life on my 25th birthday. And that is the first time I got help. <laughs> Throughout my life, I had had counseling, I had been to doctors, I had been the medical guinea pig in many ways. But at this point, I mean, there was no way I was going to survive everything I had been going through at the time. I had no one to back me up. And that does say a lot. You know, a lot of these people who are victimized or, you know, put themselves in certain situations they don't see a way out of. A lot of the time it's because they don't have family or people to be there for them to support them. 
And there's usually techniques that these types of men use to make sure of that. Well, he didn't really have to. He just immediately saw it. I didn't have family and have anything. So this person used me in the industry. I was the business mind. I created everything. And unfortunately, I slapped his name on a lot of it. And so this control that I kept allowing in my life, this was a mindset. And I'm at the time, again, 24, 25. So this is a long time of living this way. And I had still, I'd been through, you know, in and out of um, these situations before, and I had still been doing this. And at this point, I almost lost my life. He tried to murder me on my birthday. So that pushed me to say, okay, I either end this now or I do something because I can't keep doing it. I can't stand my lifestyle that everyone seems to love and respect me for. I can't stand the men I date that everyone thinks I'm crazy for thinking he's crazy. I can't stand this life anymore of secrecy and being completely in the dark all the time. It, it was suffocating. So I thought, well, I'm either done or I reach out for help. And I went into this emotional intelligence program that in one year, I actually accomplished a lot. I had stopped chronically vomiting because that's something I developed as nervous issues. And I stopped getting with abusive men and I ended up, you know, kicking him out. So that program was really a beginning to a lot of how I stopped a lot of these patterns. It's again, one thing to recognize it. It's another to know how to break it. When I went into the program, the first thing they asked me, everyone was, you know, what, why are you here? And I was like, I'm a very smart person. <laughs> I, I know a lot. I've educated myself. I've been through lots of different therapy types of things and stuff. My issue isn't that I know what I need or don't know what I need. It's the how. How do I get there? Because I can't seem to stop doing these things that are really life-threatening, that are hurting people around me. It's, it's too much. So it was the how. How do you get there? And there was a woman that worked in that program, Mary Moore, and she's there in Mesa, Arizona. She was an amazing woman who didn't need a dime to just be there for me. And really, that's what I needed. I just needed one person who cared, who was there and who cared. And a lot of times that was difficult for me to see other people go through similar stuff, but have a mother, have a father, have someone, a sister, someone there. I didn't have that. So this, this woman, Mary, she, she was that for me and she changed my whole world. That is an important person. Yeah. The other ones, um, really throughout my life, my, my sister was my protector, um, for me, I really think that I've been through so much tragedy, even outside of the cults, um, you know, with almost losing my life and then not being believed from that. He was he was a well-known person. And it, here we go again, being the person who isn't believed or called crazy. And he was such a dangerous person. I felt compelled to do something more. And I took him to court and he won. So these types of people that are really good at what they do, they're so good. They, they look for people that have the energies that I did. They really do. They're predators. And I have to tell you, though, that experience without it, I wouldn't I wouldn't have had the progress I have today. If he didn't do what he did, I would nothing would have pushed me. I was already going through DUIs, ready to just die. And then being faced with actually being, you know, possibly killed. I remember I fought to live and I, I got through that night with the thought, I can't do this to my family. And that's what I fought with. It wasn't, oh, me or my life or I have to fight for my life. I didn't have any care for my my worth. I, I didn't have so 
myself with. So it was for my family. I couldn't do this to my sister. I couldn't do this to my dad. This is not how they're going to hear I went out. That was the way I thought. So I was so calm in the way I approached the situation because I do the best in chaos. And I, for some reason, got through that night. And um, I didn't tell anyone about it. No one. I didn't call authorities. I did nothing like that. But I did get into a program. So, you know, it's a scary, scary thing because when I did end up talking about it and this Me Too thing wasn't here yet, there was there was no accepting truth. It was all keep it to yourself. I'm uncomfortable hearing it. And I had strangers out of hundreds of friends in the modeling industry that supported me in court because of what they'd been through before. And so that that was like, well, I'll never let them go and they're friends to this day. That kind of support, it's so treasured, so treasured by me. And those types of people came out of just seemingly nowhere in my life. And even though it's a disappointment to think, well, my family couldn't be there for me or my, my parents or anyone that, you know, is expected to. It isn't, it's a hopeful thought to think that there are people who don't even know you who are willing to be there for you. And that's really what I think I'm trying to do in, in who I am. I've, I've always been someone, I really do mean always, have been someone who is willing and ready to show the people who are so eager to hurt me that I'm there for them. That was such a huge motivation for me. The reality is no matter what type of uh, therapies you're using in your life, there's really nothing that's more powerful than a friend who's there to support you through anything. Right. And like the woman, Mary Moore, as a coach, like the woman, Anne Woods Tinkham here in, in Longmont, she's incredible acupuncturist that we, you know, she's willing to work with me on things because she just wanted to help. Those types of people are just lifesavers for me. Um, Another one that I'm I'm really hoping um, to get more education out there about or a type of therapy that is, is rest therapy. That type, this float therapy, this flotation tank therapy that people know of as flotation tank tank therapy is so um, controversial as far as that, that I've been seeing in many ways. And for me personally, I thought it was a fascinating thing. It's just like it, it grabbed my attention when I heard that veterans and PTSD, people with severe PTSD were showing really impressive improvements um, with just sitting in water and dark. And I was like, well, how and why? So, you know, attending the last three flow conferences has been really helpful in understanding that. So that I didn't really know. I, I really thought I could not meditate. My mind wasn't wired for it. I can't stop this monkey mind. I can't stop it. And I thought, you know, putting me in, in darkness is not foreign to what I've been through before. It's not going to change anything. So I didn't really understand, but I'm almost always willing to try something. <laughs> so, right. And so I did. And even though, and I'll say this, even though it was uncomfortable, it was so uncomfortable, I was getting anxious and ready to get out. And I was like, oh, there's water. And this is distracting me. And this is distracting me. And, the, and then the hour is almost up. And I get about one minute of being in that theta brainwave state. And I get out and I'm like, huh. <laughs> so I've years trying to get to that one minute. And it took me an hour. 
Interesting. So most people are like, oh, it, I only relaxed for a second. Are you kidding me? You got to that place. That's amazing. The ones that won't even stay in that uncomfortability to see if they can get there. That's where they're cutting themselves short. Won't even get in They're They're, you know, claiming for a lot of things. And I understand there's real, real things out there like agoraphobia and things that, that people are, are really afraid of. But again, I, I think that you and I touched on this before. It's it's really a matter of perspective. If you're willing to get in a car, like you said, this it's really is not that different. Cars are actually a hell of a lot more dangerous. So. <laughs> that is definitely true. Yeah, that is definitely true. So give this a try. Yeah. <laughs> because the freedom you feel in a car will not compare to the freedom you'll get out of this. It's so true. There's so, I, there's so much power in, uh, in being willing to let go, in being willing to let go, period, and then being willing to let go within the confines of a float tank. Your, your life, the capacity for your, your life experience is dramatically increased in a way that just isn't available in other ways. Right. And so another thing I'm running into with the float community is that they don't, it, let's say there's tons of people who are willing, but they can't afford it because it's too pricey and they can afford it once. And so now they consider it like a spa day or something that's, you know, not really necessarily what what it could be used for. So that's, you know, why I love and I'm so passionate about what my partner Matt is doing with his company Transact Wellness, because it's a company we're converting into a nonprofit for these reasons. Um, I mean, he's dedicated to supporting the rest therapy industry and as a whole and its growth and public adoption because his passion is with legitimizing the rest therapy as a respected option in all around healthcare. Um, I mean, that to me is so essential for a lot of these things that have helped me that, you know, when people and I, when I talk to people and they think of the issues that I'm dealing with or whatever it is, when it comes to lifestyle, immediate thoughts are usually, well, have you spoken to a therapist? Have you gone to a doctor for medication? Whatever it is. And I just hope that we can, through what he's doing, change that questioning that, that the immediate thought would be like, well, what kind of breast therapy have you tried or what acupuncturist do you have? You know, what are those questions? Where are those questions? So in our experiences from attending the float conferences, like I said, in the last three years, we've seen massive growth in interest in rest therapy, as well as impressive PTSD research uh, provided by the Laureate Institute of Brain Research at University of Tulsa, Oklahoma, actually. So it's to me, that is enough to turn my head. I mean, going through as much as I've gone through, I'm like, I'm sorry, what? You're showing Im impressive results with PTSD? I have not heard that yet at all. So that turns my head. And then let's say you're not dealing with that, that extreme level of, you know, the, with PTSD and, and trauma. Um, it's still it's still really beneficial for so much, so many reasons. I really think that, you know, if you have the perfect health and you have all the time in the world and you're just happy with your life, you're still going to get a lot out of this because this is, this is introversion at its best. This is a way to wake up whatever is laying dormant, to observe whatever is there. And there's always benefit in just observation of what is, what is going on, the self-awareness, what's showing up in life. What, who are you from a moment to moment? basis. I'm not necessarily a wholly well-rounded person. I'm not always like this. I mean, a lot of how I've come this far is, is incredibly, I'm so ungrateful, so grateful for it, but I still am very challenged. I probably always will be. Um, I, I really, 
want a lot of people to understand that, you know, my friend, like my friend Don Watson talks about, this is a lifelong journey. This is not just, you get through it, you're a a trooper and now you're helping people and that's, you know, now you're all, all better. This is a journey and a process that we go through together, which is another reason why I created what I created because I can't do this alone. Nobody really can. I mean, we're not wired that way. That's why we're so driven to belong. So I really hope and encourage people to understand that part of this. I mean, being connected with others is is such an important part of stopping the chaos in the world. So how can we connect with others when there's all this programming going on? This radical acceptance is an extremely foreign concept for so many people. So it's nice to see that there's a lot more, you know, like Byron Katie's out there and and um, Ram Dass's and people, you know, spreading this love that really just shines through them. They are love. And that's that's really powerful. People gravitate towards that. Everything, every every tool that's available to us, uh, every every like great spiritual actually spiritual leader, uh, all of these like really powerful energy forces are, are needed and we should spend less time, uh, arguing about which one's better and which one's right because everything, everyone and every person has it has something that's right for them. All I would, I would say to everyone is try everything because every time you think, you know, the thing that's best for you, you, um, have put a barrier around the potential possibility. So see, just try things, try things and see what happens. Right. I forget the philosopher who said this, but I always love the quote, um, run from the man who says he knows the truth. <laughs> I am someone who is not interested in what people know. I'm interested in what they've experienced and what they've questioned and in what they have to share. But, you know, n- none of us truly have this, you know, facts are not necessarily facts. They come from somewhere. There's, there's always somewhere more to dig into, somewhere deeper. So I really think that it's important for us to not say we know the answers. We have the answers for anything. It's, it's your knowing. You can say, I have my answers. I have my knowing. I have my truth. And this is what I know for me. And like you're saying, everyone has a different reality. And that's something that I've kind of learned how to cope with different religions that I've, I've heavily judged through, through my issues. I understand that there is the one reality we all share and that we can mostly agree on. And then there are the realities we create, the perspectives we have, and every single person's going to see one person differently. So we all have different realities and there is no right and wrong. This dichotomy of should, shouldn't, right, wrong, good, bad, it doesn't exist. If we can adopt that and really the four agreements, Oh, if we could adopt the four agreements that just that would change everything. Being impeccable with your word, no assumptions, you know, do your best. And, you know, just doing your best can vary even in doing those those four agreements. Your best varies with how you feel. It varies with what you're going through. And so this shame, this guilt, this blame, these these vibrations that are so easy to jump to because fear is so easy 
we can squash through these things like the four agreements, like just just questioning what we think we know. Stop with the assumptions. Be more impeccable with your words. Start meaning what you say. And it's okay if you can't follow through on a couple of things. Communicate about it. We There's simple things that we as a species can do to start connecting more. I personally have been strongly advising my um, partner, my boyfriend, Matt, to not partner with people who don't truly share in his vision and his energy because for the trial and errors that I've done that and with him and other people, it's not that they're bad or they're wrong. It's just not for what we want. We want the energy to be fed in this direction. So it's not about saying you're not you know, good enough or this isn't right or whatever. It's just like what you want for you is your knowing. It's your path. And it's your passion. There's nothing wrong with that. And no matter how different it is or how much people may think that it's crazy, just talk to Elon Musk, I guess, because a lot of people thought that about him. (laughs) Still do. He responds on Twitter. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. He's great. No, I, I really do love that the best people are crazy. They really are. The, The ones that are willing to be like, sure, I'm a little nuts. What of it? I'm really ready to start getting that craziness into the world because we're too rigid. We're too set in our ways. Oh, shaking the system. I mean, I've always been that rebel type. If I was born in the 70s, I would have probably been a part of a lot of things because I've always been that that person that's like, I don't know. Let's let's shake this up and see how that turns out instead of just signing up for this. So the first product in in doing this and and this is such a passion of mine. That's why I'm coming back to it. The first product that we'll be doing with Transact Wellness is called Facility Flow, and it's for sale right now in soft launch at transactwellness.com, and it provides billing and scheduling for facilities, which helps the industry grow, which is our passion. That's what we want. Um, The next step is powered by blockchain, actually. So we distribute donated funds to facilities and patrons like veterans and high profile trauma cases like mine. And we call it redistributing health back to the people. So if you'd like to know more about that, or if your listeners would like to know more, you can go to transactwellness.com and follow our blog. Um, And there's updated information about the donation pool, which is extremely exciting for me because that creates opportunities for people like me to be able to afford to go float and use this um, as a therapy, as a real therapy without worrying about, you know, not being able to make the bills. So um, if you want to know how to get involved with that, that's also on the website. So you can contact them through there. And the owner is Matt Gansky. Cool. We'll check that out for sure. Let me ask you, let me ask you two, two last questions. Sure. Number one, if you could recommend one, one thing that everyone do, what would it be? That's such a great question. It can be put away your shopping cart. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone do. At one point in everyone's life, they should own and learn how to properly own a dog. I think that 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 owning a pet um, really teaches you a lot about you as long as you're willing to learn. And I think that that's an important thing to know just as people. I think owning a pet is a very important thing to do. <laughs> Go adopt. Adopt. Don't. Yeah, definitely adopt. <laughs> that's a super interesting. That's a super interesting one. I really think so. I'm not kidding. And 
it, it's been a hugely therapeutic thing for me having grown up with temper and anger issues my entire life because of what I was around. And, and then the PTSD, I have such complex PTSD that loud noises or anything, it would just set me off. And when you're in that space of, I can't handle any more, like I'm really going to put my fist through a wall or someone's face, I cannot handle anymore. And an animal's like, I'm hungry. <laughs> you're like, no, you're not. <laughs> like, I cannot do this right now. It's amazing the willpower you muster up. And when, when something innocent is depending on you, it becomes more than you. And I think that's an important thing for us to start understanding as a humanity to understand that there's so much more than us. And having a pet can start that, that mindset. That is that is definitely true, and there there is so much more than us, and everything that we do to appreciate, understand, and help that is uh, only beneficial for everyone and everything. Right. I spent some time in Costa Rica as a kid, and that experience really helped me understand a lot about the American lifestyle and and children and how we're raised and what we see and um, all the things we take for granted. I remember being there at like 12 years old thinking, where's the microwave? Where's the washing machine? I don't understand. I have to wash dishes by hand. That doesn't make sense. So there's a whole lifestyle change (laughs) where I was like, I was like, I'm Cinderella now. What the hell? And all these kids are like, what are you talking about? This is just life. So perspective is fascinating thing to get when you travel. But I encourage traveling in a specific way. There's a lot of travel junkies out there. There's a lot of people, I think, that maybe use travel to maybe even escape a little um, themselves or their lives or use it for some kind of image they want they want to portray. But I believe traveling shouldn't be generalized anymore as the good thing to do or, you know, the thing that is is helpful for for whatever reason. I think that submersing yourself in different cultures, there's a difference. If you are willing to go down into the town and starve a little or maybe get sick or maybe shake hands or hug with people who probably haven't bathed in weeks, or if you're willing to go do these things, eat things that you're like, what the hell am I eating? If you're willing to really submerse yourself in these cultures and be called names and all this stuff, that to me is traveling. That's really traveling, not sitting in a five-star hotel looking at the sights. So I'm very interested in doing more of that in my life. Costa Rica offered a huge perspective for me, and I will never, ever forget it. Even though the circumstances were, by definition, extreme, I I will always appreciate that experience. So really quickly, give us the Costa Rica story. <laughs> yeah, my I, this was 1999, um, and as we all, most of us remember, that was the year of Y2K, or the upcoming year of Y2K was around the corner and there was a lot, you know, that people believed. But my dad, being the way he was, he would take things and run with them. It's very extreme. And there was a man, I forget his name on purpose, that wrote books <laughs> that convinced him or he allowed to convince him, convince himself that the one place to be on earth that would keep his family safe would be Costa Rica. So we ended up moving to Central America after, now this was the first time in my life that we had stayed in one place mm-hmm. for more than a couple of years. And out of nowhere, I'm, I'm hearing, we're going to Costa Rica. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I, I just established a life. It took me so long. So I was distraught and upset. We end up going there. 
and I'm the one constant. There were siblings that came and went and, and my grandma and stuff and even my mother at one point, but I was the one constant. So I've been there. I was there for about three and a half, four years. And in, in the whole time we were there, my dad immediately got started on survival ways to survive this, this crash. Right. And, um, so he started building a two story, eight bedroom wooden cabin up in the mountains, far, far away from civilization. Um, and he bought four American Staffordshire Terriers <laughs> and, um, built massive kennels for these dogs next to our house put them through boot camp training so that they were guard dogs, which completely changed my, my sweet, innocent puppies changed after that. I didn't recognize them afterwards, which was very difficult for me as a kid. And then when we were stuck up on the mountain with, with these dogs and only the dogs, that was it. Um, you know, we, uh, we didn't go to school. We, I, I believe there was one school that was close to my grade that spoke English and it was like three hours away. So I went there on occasion. There was no real curriculum or requirements. I just kind of went and didn't go. And it was called Ninos de America. So that was, that was the one English speaking place. And so that whole, that whole experience also taught me that they were taught English. They were, it was mandatory for a lot of kids there to be taught English. And I was like, that's interesting. So I was up on a mountain. My best friends were dogs. I didn't go anywhere. It was an incredible experience because the mountain was mine. <laughs> I dangerously and bad parenting here, uh, was left to go about my ways and I would fall asleep on cliffs, uh, watching incredible things like clouds and sunsets and all sorts of stuff. And I would go about with my dogs feeling completely safe. And so there was a lot, I would drink from the river that just kind of went down the mountain. So I never needed water. And it was, it was an incredible experience, but the reasoning behind it was so extreme that it was yet another thing we couldn't talk about mm. when we came back and when it didn't happen. <laughs> yeah. I was going to ask, what was that? Like? <laughs> my, um, my first thought as, you know, a smart ass 13 year old was told you, <laughs> Um, but to save my life and not get beaten to a bloody pulp, I didn't say a word and we pretended it didn't happen. Got it. So we moved on. We stayed there for a little while, but then we went back to the States and, um, <laughs> just, it never happened much later in life. When my dad and I were able to have a relationship, he would say things like, I'm very sorry. I did that. I, I have regrets and all this stuff. And I, I was really surprised and really, you know, grateful for him to say that. I would thank him. And he even went around my whole family asking for their forgiveness for the things he's done and, and other things like Costa Rica. So he really did repent before he, he left this world. Um, but when he said things like that, I, I have no regrets around it. I, I, ha I told him, I have to tell you, Dad, for all the craziness, this is one of the coolest things I get to say. <laughs> So thanks for that. <laughs> uh, yeah, that seems like a cool couple years. Right. Yeah. However it happened. Very difficult, but it was definitely an experience I'll never forget. I couldn't appreciate it like I could now. So I'm I'm absolutely it's on my list to, to go back there. Cool. Uh last question. Do you have any questions for me? Um I think I think we talked about it last time, but I, I am a little more curious about vitality and what exactly is involved with that. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, <laughs> huh, yeah. Um, vitality is 
It's everything. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, it's one of the beautiful things about Vitality. One of the most challenging things about Vitality is um, it's a collection of so many different things that can make you feel better that you can uh, get lost. You can lose your you can lose your path in uh, you can only try out a few of the available options and you'll you'll miss out on so many things that might have been might have been the thing that could uh, really transform your life so um vitality is a weird a weird place and um it's a fun it's a fun spot you guys should come check it out sometime yes we'd absolutely will we have a plan to come see the evanescence lindsey sterling concert in august so all right we'll have to stop by <laughs> cool, cool. lindsey sterling's rad Oh, I love her. She's amazing. Sharon, thank you so much for your time, for coming on Becoming Legendary. You are a true legend. Thank you so much. I so appreciate you and everything you guys do. Thank you.